0: Hello
1: and welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, I'm host of GPB-TV's Lawmakers and the new show, Lawmakers Beyond the Dome. I'm filling in for Bill Nigget today. We're going to spend the next hour exploring all aspects of the decision by a federal appeals court to allow Georgia's abortion law to take effect immediately. The decision was expected after last month when the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Unlike some states where trigger laws took hold after the justices sent abortion decisions to states to make decisions, Georgia's law had been barred from taking effect until the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals decided And Circuit Court Judge William Pryor wrote in that ruling that the case the U.S. Supreme Court had makes clear no right to abortion exists under the Constitution, so Georgia may prohibit them. We're going to look at Georgia's abortion law from all angles with our panelists. First, Stephen Fowler covers state and local politics for GPB and hosts the podcast Battleground Ballot Box. Welcome, Stephen.
2: Good morning, Donna.
1: Good to have you. Also, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver joins us. She represents parts of DeKalb County. She has served multiple terms in the Georgia House and Senate. And Representative Oliver, we love that you are a frequent guest on GPB's Political Rewind, so we're glad you're here.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation.
1: Maya Prabhu covers Georgia government and politics for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and has spent time doing in-depth reporting on Georgia's abortion law, often breaking the news on various aspects of the legislation and then the law. So welcome, Maya. Thank you so much for having me. And rounding out our panel is Amy Steigerwald, certainly not least, I wanted to say, professor of political science at Georgia State University. Her research focuses on the federal judicial selection process, as well as the role of courts as institutions and the differing influences on court, on the court and the decision making. And so it's always good to hear from you on Political Rewind, Amy. Thank you so much for having me, Donna. And we're going to start We're going to start with you. So let's start with you t- giving us walking us through how the court got to this ruling.
3: So the Eleventh Circuit got to this ruling mm-hmm. due to the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs, which was pretty uh, straight out there. It overruled, of course, both Roe v. Wade and Casey v. Planned Parenthood. It said that uh, there was no constitutional uh right to privacy that extended to the right to terminate uh, a pregnancy. And so therefore, it really returned to the states the decision of whether or not they wanted to allow abortion and said that the ways now legally that these types of uh, statutes will be looked at is whether or not they have a rational basis in law, which is the sort of least- um, level of scrutiny that the courts use. And basically, as long as you can come up with any reason to justify the law, then it's okay to go into place. And the court made very clear that it was very clearly a rational basis to want to protect uh, the life of an unborn child. So 481 is now in place. The other provision of it that the 11th Circuit addressed is the personhood provisions. With that one, basically what they said was, we are only going to look right now at a facial challenge. So what does the text say? It hasn't gone into effect. And here we're going to interpret it very narrowly to simply be talking about whether or not unborn children can now be counted in the census. And that obviously can happen. George is now determined that will happen. And so that will be fine. But what they left open is an incredibly wide level of what we call as-applied challenges, meaning once the law is put into place and the implications of that major change, actually, to the very first provision of the Georgia Code, which then affects all the rest of it, goes into effect, that the law could continue to be challenged on those grounds. And so we'll likely see that. But the effect of this decision was to say that, yes, the Georgia law is, in fact, legal, constitutional, and can go into effect.
1: Yeah, so much to unpack there, and um, we'll get into that to all aspects of that. So let's let's move a little further with you, Maya, because you've also followed this lawsuit all along. So what what do what do you see that came out of yesterday? I think the biggest thing
4: is I I feel like when looking at you know the the appeals court gave the attorneys here in Georgia 3 weeks to submit additional briefs um which were due last Friday and looking at those it seemed as though the state kind of was hedging on the idea of of personhood like like they said you know if if you guys think that the whole natural person making a an embryo a natural person is is a lot we we can see we can see that being being a lot um and so i think there were there were some people out there who thought that there might have been a way forward for the challenge of the personhood provisions uh to continue so i think there were folks who were very surprised when the appeals court said that the entire law could go into place as is, I think that was probably for for me and for a lot of the folks I spoke to yesterday, the, the most surprising thing about the ruling.
1: Yeah, I think Representative Oliver. So you were there 2019. Uh, so take us back to when the, when that the personhood decision was debated. Of course, this the when as a bill, this law passed by only one vote. So take us back to what what you remember from all of that and how how we see it today.
0: I remember it well. What a terrible day it was for the House. And today we have this very stark reality in very plain, even bad language from Judge Pryor saying that there is no constitutional right of privacy and no constitutional protection for a woman's right to have a decision, make a decision about abortion. The uh, taking away the constitutional right that has existed for 49 and a half years um, is come to reality today. Uh, Judge Pryor's language using uh, calling the plaintiffs licensed professional healthcare, calling them abortionists. Uh, going into the argument on the vagueness of what is a person under very complicated medical jargon, he, he makes an analogy to bicycle parts and vehicles and parkings as to make an analysis about what's vague. It's a very, very harsh reality today for the five and a half million women of Georgia to know that there will be no protection, no constitutional rights. During the debates um, at that time, I really did not think that Roe v. Wade would be reversed. In the last year, I've come to the prediction, unfortunately, that it would be. Governor Kemp wanted to pass a trigger bill, and the House, some members of the House, wanted a more aggressive banning of abortion than the trigger bill and therefore introduce the concept of personhood as a way to strategically get directly at the constitutional protection. And that has resulted in more confusion and more chaos, in my view. There will be litigation coming from those wanting to protect some women's right to abortion under the Georgia state constitution. As you know, our state constitution does specifically cite a protection for privacy. And since 1905, a case, uh, the Georgia Supreme Court has recognized the right of privacy in the Pavachek case, and that case has been affirmed 200 times. So whether or not the uh, plaintiffs seek more full bank argument in front of the Eleventh Circuit, I'm not sure yet, but it's very clear to me that the next round of attempts to protect the women of Georgia to have a constitutional right will be based on the Georgia Constitution specific grant of right to privacy.
1: Yeah. Let's talk we're gonna get more into the state courts in just a minute. I wanna stick with this personhood with you, Stephen, the the whole idea that this is as Representative Oliver said, this is very confusing. People don't understand it. We thought we'd get some clarity. We did not get that yesterday.
2: Right. So you have to look at Georgia's law, and one of the first things that it does is it goes and changes the definition at the very beginning of Georgia State Code, Section 1-2-1, and redefines what a natural person means to include uh, an unborn child with a detectable human heartbeat. And now what that does and what some of the confusion and things is, is that Any time in the state law, there's now a question of where the word natural person or person shows up, does that apply? Obviously, in some things, it's not going to apply. Like now there's not going to be a question of, you know, can an unborn child register to vote? Because obviously there's restrictions on age and other things like that. But there are other questions that have been brought up by Georgia's personhood language that lawmakers who push the bill either haven't answered or haven't really contemplated. I mean, one popular example is uh, that we've now seen play out in other states is the concept of the HOV lane. You're not supposed to be able to drive in the HOV lane unless there are two or more persons in the car. Well, if you're pregnant, does that mean you can drive if it's just a pregnant woman in the car with her unborn child? We have a case in Texas now where a woman was given a ticket for that, and she said, no, I'm pregnant. You know, there are two people in the car, and there are just several other things um. There's questions about uh, abortion penalties and personhood, and if murder statutes might apply depending on something. I mean, I saw something yesterday where a constitutional law professor said, "You know, what about yeah? Like, what about Georgia's murder statute, and what about other charges?" And so, when you go and change something that's a fundamental definition on the backbone of the entire state law and don't really add a lot of clarifications as to when and how it can apply, there's going to be a lot of confusions, And like Amy said, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for people to try to challenge that to make the courts clarify, if the lawmakers don't, what exactly this provision might mean.
1: Yeah. Maya, I remember back when all of this was uh, debated that there and, and it the bill became a law. There was still before before we were dealing with everything in the court, there was still uh, there was a lot of people who were calling the Department of Revenue to find out whether or not they um, could count their their unborn baby on the, their taxes. Yeah. You know, I think back to 2019,
4: which feels like at least a hundred years ago um, when I, I wrote a story that focused specifically on this personhood question. And, you know, I, I also called the agencies and I asked, you know, what steps are you guys taking to uh, make it so that some of these things can happen for, you know, embryos and fetuses. And they're like, well, the, and this was in the summer and they were like, well, the law doesn't go into effect until January. And I think like the subtext there was like, we don't think this law will go into effect. So right. we're not really worried about it. Right. Um. And so the question is now, you know, I would think if anyone was paying attention in December during the Dobbs, um, during the Dobbs Supreme court hearing, I think anyone who paid attention knew what was coming and The hope is that agencies started preparing back then, and if not, they definitely should have started preparing in May uh, to figure out, you know, how does a parent claim a fetus on um, on their taxes as a dependent? I don't have kids, but my understanding is they need a social security number. So do we start giving social security numbers to fetuses? then does that change when someone's birth date is? Like, how can you give a Social Security number to a child in the womb? So it's just, there's so many questions that remain unanswered. And I'm I'm curious to know, you know, what guidance the governor's office is giving the, the agencies and, and what the agencies have been up to for hopefully at least the past three months, if not the past, what, eight Um yeah, there there are a lot of implications. And to go back to something Steven said, um, about the HOV, that was always like my favorite question to ask during the personhood thing, like the HOV. Okay, so how how are you going to enforce that? And, you know, does that mean, you know, pregnant women need to carry what, a sonogram with them in the car if they get pulled over? What's to stop any woman from saying, Well, I'm pregnant, so you know, we can be in the HOV lane and I remember speaking with the bill sponsor at the time and I said, OK, so what are all these implications? Like, what about this? What about this? And when I got to HOV, I was like, so should, you know, someone who's pregnant be able to ride in the HOV lane? And he's like, yeah, I think I think they should under this law. So, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. It's There's just so many unanswered questions that it's going to it's going to be
1: really interesting going forward. Amy, you've got to wonder what those uh, the the phone calls are going into these agencies, how they're dealing with it. You know, there there's going to be a lot of I don't know. (laughs) I've I've got to believe that because nobody really does know. They don't, right? This is
3: honestly first in the nation, one, to figure this out and have to work it through. And there are, it goes even, right, so on some of them, right, one might say, right, sort of HOV lanes, what is that? But what about um, a pregnant woman who is sentenced to jail time? Under, right, if we sort of follow the natural implications of the personhood statute, that would mean that you are now putting a person who has not been convicted of any crime and has not gone through due process in jail, because if the pregnant woman is put in jail, then so is her unborn child. So what happens now? Right. What are the implications of that? Right. What are the implications for getting access to certain benefits. Um, Maya was talking about sort of social security and other things. Well, this unborn child, right, even if we were talking about somebody who is undocumented, the unborn child is now, as of, well, fertilization, a U.S. citizen because they are in the United States. And so now they have the ability to get access to certain things that their parent does not. Uh, And potentially receive them prior to. And so that was actually a question that was asked of one of the bill sponsors to uh, the uh, legislative council in uh, the Georgia Assembly. And they actually did write back saying that their understanding would be that now all of those benefits would have to accrue to the uh, unborn child of the undocumented immigrant or non-citizen immigrant because Right. The status was now conferred upon them. And so it's sort of unclear how that would work. What would be that process? Where would that go? Uh, it does also raise questions. Um, and I think this, again, was in uh, that legal thing um, the deportation of uh, somebody who is an undocumented alien, because, again, you would be deporting the unborn but now person. Uh, again, they hadn't gone through, right, that decision was being made for them. And so there's a lot of levels that come into here that are going to have to be figured out. The other side of this that we don't know how this is going to work is on the flip side of for those who are going to the hospital, right, who were, and for the doctors especially, is what's going to be required of them now in making these determinations. Um, I think it is important to lay out that the presumption is, That there cannot be actions taken to perform any of the um, activities that, right, we think of as abortion, right, whether, right, no matter what they are. And so, again, right, and it becomes an affirmative defense to say that there was a spontaneous abortion, right, a miscarriage, and so there's actions taken to prevent that, uh, that it is medically futile, et cetera. But part of the problem is going to be the Onus is now on doctors to have to think of this in terms of what can I legally justify, which is, in fact, different from medically justified. And how is that activity going to work? And so now what are the procedures that are going to have to be put in place? Um, the other thing that is going to be really interesting that we don't know how it's going to play out is that um, the law allows district attorneys to be able to um, get any type of health records from any uh, medical facility about any of these uh, activities and the decisions that are taken. And it allows them to do so both for any of the medical facilities in their jurisdiction, but also for any woman that resides in, or pregnant person that resides in their jurisdiction, even if they have the abortion or the procedure in another jurisdiction. And so now there's going to be this interesting thing of being able to do of what does that mean um, for travel? There's also the question of what does that mean if a woman is to go um, out of state? How would this affect them? Um, And the final question actually is going to be medication abortions. That is where the term so using. And so it does it it, it appears that this would uh, outlaw that and also uh, criminalize the actions of the woman, because I do think it's important to note that this law. Does allow the woman to be uh, prosecuted, which is why there's an affirmative defense for women that they think, right? They thought that they had a medical emergency or that the pregnancy was non-viable, which obviously would mean that if they did not think that, right? That that is sort of the, is a defense for these particular exceptions. And so there's a lot of questions that are now going to come into play, and particularly since we've seen district attorneys. Some saying I'm going to enforce this, some saying we're not, we're going to have this kind of patchwork of laws and exactly what this is going to look like and how this is going to work out that's going to really create a gray area, not just for women, but also for doctors who are not going to be clear what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do.
1: Yeah, so far we have been watching other states go through this, and we've been able to sit back and watch. This is now for us to deal with. And the one thing we know right now is in terms of the personhood question, we are a test case, aren't we, Representative Oliver? Like right now we know that other states are looking to us and that those those who are who have been pushing this nationwide are really seeing, really taking a look at what's happening in Georgia, what's going to take place.
0: Once again, Georgia will be the center of difficult political decisions. We thus far have been talking about some very almost academic, interesting, unanswerable questions that come from uh, a determination from a small group of pro-life folks, folks who call themselves pro-life. Uh, to ban abortion. We've been talking about all the intricate legal issues that simply have no answer. But let's talk about the real impact here. The real impact is that poor women are going to be denied a right to make the decision about whether to terminate a pregnancy and will be forced, in many cases, based on a lack of resources, a lack of medical care, a lack of opportunity to have an unwanted child. There is nothing more morally offensive to me than the birth of an unwanted child. That's a personal view. In part, it's a view based on faith. And yet the Republican minority, pro-life minority, that's insisted on us being in these interesting academic arguments are going to turn their back on poor women who have no access. As we go through the chaos of the court cases and the litigation and Georgia being a leader, um, I also want to turn to the women of privilege who have invested, The families have been able to invest tens of thousands of dollars in creation of embryos. The reproductive health science has changed dramatically over my long uh, Legal uh, law practice. I have done a great deal of adoption work over my long law practice. I am familiar with the ways in which people build families through adoptions, but also build families through surrogates and embryos and the modern science that offers so many families opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't have. So you have this group of, of folks that can afford that kind of modern technology whose entire future now is destroyed by this case and then you have the other group of women who have no access who already are treated in very disparate ways in our health care system who already have higher mortality rates who already have poor birth rates birth outcomes who are desperate for unavailable medical care And this case based on political messaging and political opportunism, is putting all women at risk in the state of Georgia. So I can talk, and I'm a former law professor, I can talk a long time about the burden of proof that a police officer standing at the passenger door for a woman has to determine whether the woman is pregnant or not. I can speculate about all that legal questions that come from tax returns and the poor burden on the tax commissioner to decide all that. But I'm not as worried about the tax commissioner and the police officer and all these law school academic. I'm worried about the women of Georgia who are going to lose the opportunity to have a family based on reproductive science and also the women who are going to lose any access to medical care and further suffer the disparity that we inequitable Status that so many women have in this state of Georgia.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. Stephen, I want to talk a little bit about where we might see some of this come first, and it may be with the district attorneys. And right now, uh, we've focused so much on the rising crime, some of the other issues that that, uh, district attorneys are dealing with, that law enforcement is dealing with, but we've had some district attorneys say We're just not going to consider this a priority.
2: Right. So, back in 2019, when the law was being debated and was first signed, I did ask uh, every district attorney in the state their reading of the law and if they thought pregnant uh, women could be prosecuted and different things like that. And it really was a mixed bag because remember, district attorneys are elected like many other officials. You know, district attorneys have different ideological backgrounds, like many other politicians. So you have some that are more uh, Democratic-leaning and more liberal, but you have some that are more conservative. And the opinions about what the law says and how important or how top of a priority it would be to prosecute varies. I mean, what you're seeing, the reality is, in a lot of the bigger metro Atlanta areas where there are a lot more Democrats, the prosecutors are saying they either wouldn't prosecute or it's not a top priority. There are other things, but even in other parts of the state, you know, there's not going to be at this point, a huge effort by a local prosecutor's office to start tracking down uh, women and prosecuting women. But there's also not any evidence to suggest that if the time comes, something like that wouldn't happen because of the way the law is written, because of the way people are interpreting it, because of the questions that are arising from this. And so you know, it's important to remember, too, that the way the legislature works is that a lot of times they have to go back and clean up a lot of the laws that they've done. Um, I think back to a couple of years ago, uh, Donna, you remember that there was a big school bus uh, law that they passed to stop people from passing school buses. But the way it was written and worded, they accidentally made it legal to drive past a school bus with the stop arm out and kids getting out In a certain way, just because of the way they didn't contemplate the way that the language was written and the way it could be interpreted. So they had to go back later and clean things up. And so I imagine in the future legislative session, dependent on the outcome, whether it's Brian Kemp or Stacey Abrams that wins, you might see the legislature come back and address some of these loopholes or some of these hypothetical questions that have been brought up now that the dog has caught the mailman and Georgia's law is actually taking effect. So, you know, the question of prosecution and the question of, you know, there's a lot of hypotheticals that have come out there that the bill sponsors and other Republicans have said, of course not, we'd never do that. Well, that's what the law says and that's how people are reading the law. So I would expect there to be, uh, uh, I would expect there to be more legislation in the coming years to kind of clarify what and how exactly Georgia's is, especially as we're seeing top Republicans and top top lobbying groups say that they want to focus on the what comes next of doing more to be pro-family and to do more things that uh, actually make outcomes better for women that now are more likely to have to uh, carry a baby to term because abortions are almost completely outlawed
1: here. Okay, so I I want to focus more on that. But we're going to take a break right now. I want to talk a little bit more about what to expect in this legislative session that's coming up in January. But I also want to talk about the political fallout. And we heard some immediately from some uh, candidates just yes, yesterday. So uh, we'll do that when we come back. This is Political Rewind on GPB.
4: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today.
1: Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donald Lowry filling in for Bill Nigat with GPB's Stephen Fowler, the AJC's Maya Prabhu, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, and GSU Professor Amy Steigerwald. So we know that the legislative session, this is one year, Maya, that we know that this is going to be top of the line. Uh, This issue will be a a big thing going into the legislative session. I'm, I'm curious to know where you think we might start with some of this?
4: You know, I I was at the National Right to Life Convention that was here in Atlanta the day that the Dobbs decision came out. And talking with the folks there, you know, they're basically like, okay, Roe is no longer the standard, so game on. Um, <clears throat> you know, we heard... After the the leak of the draft opinion, a lot of Republicans saying we want a complete ban on all abortions. And then we heard, you know, and then I heard spoke to folks in that room who said, you know, we're going to be coming back for the. They were calling them loopholes um, next year. Speaking about the exemptions that there are in our law that is went into effect yesterday for. Um, for rape and incest. They're like, you know, it, it shouldn't matter how the child was conceived. That's discriminatory. So we, we're going to come for those next. You know, they, the Senate last year passed, but the House didn't take up uh, a bill that was going to restrict the ability of uh, the abortion pills to be sent through the mail without Sent through the mail at all, but then also require, um, you know, pregnant women to be seen in person versus teledoc, which is something that was put in place because of COVID and kind of uh, made more permanent by the Biden administration. So I think these are some of the things that, that we're going to see pushed because, you know, like Stephen said, regardless of who is in the governor's mansion? We're still going to have Republican majorities, majorities in each chamber, so we'll, we'll very likely have Republican majorities in each chamber. So, you know, I think these are are some of the things that that we'll see. Um, I think I, I don't know. Maybe uh, Stephen is a little bit more optimistic than I am as far as these cleanup uh, bills. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that that's going to be a, a priority um, coming back, but um, I do agree with Stephen in that uh, the folks who have been, you know, anti-abortion legis- legislators throughout are saying they're going to focus more on okay, now we have to um, help these children and help these mothers who are going to have children who, who might not necessarily have wanted them. So I think we might we might see some more things. Um, along those lines, things that will help, um, women and babies, uh, uh, focus on things that will help women and babies next year. I think,
1: I think, I think those are going to be the two sides of the coin of legislation that we'll see moving through. Representative. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Representative Oliver. Do you, do you agree with that, that there, there's this feeling of empowerment now by some of the people who are pro-life?
0: I think that the opportunity for the Republicans to use abortion as a purely political hammer will continue in a very, very accelerated way. There's a small minority of the Republican base who vote exclusively based on abortion, and they will move forward, uh, those who represent that voice in the Georgia General Assembly, with uh, greater uh, demands to to end all abortions. I think the current what a alleged heartbeat bill does in effect ban abortions because of the practical implications of, of all kinds of things we've talked about, and then there's a group and Governor Kemp yesterday came out and said we're going to support women um, who have these children that are not planned and are uh, and can they cannot support and i think that infuriated me a great deal there are 12 to 14,000 children in foster care right now who are not being cared for adequately by the state of georgia and we the taxpayer we the general assembly have full responsibility for those 12 to 14,000 children and i don't think that anybody would suggest that we're doing what we should be doing for them there's 600 children in uh, very intensive psychiatric beds across Georgia. The taxpayer is paid for, most of whom are in the state custody, most of whom do not have families to go to. Uh, the disparity of our health care incomes for children in poverty, uh, outcomes, health care outcomes for children in poverty, for women in poverty, cannot be cured by good thoughts to help women who are pregnant and now must bring a child forward that they cannot support and cannot have. It's not that they won't love those children. It's that we as a state do not provide adequate support now. And the idea that we're going to provide adequate supports in the future uh, does not seem to me to be a reality based on a very long political career. I'm pretty discouraged right now about the political messaging that's going to come, yes, we're going to help these women, and also the political hammer of no abortion ever, anytime, place in Georgia. Those are two big hammers that are not going to help the average woman of Georgia.
1: Well, we we know the criticism about Georgia being one of the worst states for pregnant women. We know that there have been at least some efforts to shore that up to make things better in terms of expanding Medicaid coverage and that kind of thing to a, a year after a child is born. But uh, do you do you see that there will be any efforts to to improve in conditions when it comes to maternal mortality and those issues?
0: There's a great deal of discussion about maternal mortality and the it was COVID that expanded Medicaid uh for women uh twelve months post the Georgia General Assembly wasn't gonna do that, but COVID federal uh incentives uh has already done that and Georgia followed that federal leadership. We have eight billion dollars in reserve so it's clearly that the governor uh and additional I don't know how many billion in COVID unspent money, so clearly the governor could do more. On, but he still is not going to expand Medicaid, so we're not going to provide an even even opportunity for medical assistance for poor women uh, if you don't expand Medicaid and grant to every woman who, below a certain income, has access to medical care. I feel some I, – I think the governor will do some more. Of course, we don't know who's going to be governor. We do not know who's going to be governor. Um, and – if Stacey Abrams is governor, I expect her budget's going to look a whole lot different than if Brian Kemp is governor. The reality of providing medical care for women in need who are facing a difficult pregnancy or a pregnancy that is not going to be supported by her family or her, or her society or her church or her community is, is just a huge reality in our state, and a whole lot of new questions are now Facing her based on yesterday's decision by the 11th Circuit.
1: Yeah, Amy, just give you a chance to briefly weigh in on what we're talking about in terms of the legislative session.
0: um
3: I mean, I think it's been sort of well done. I, I will admit that I probably err on the side that I don't think we're going to see a lot of cleanup bills. I think that some of this is they don't want to discuss, right? And they're going to sort of say, oh, well, the district attorneys won't do that. And so it's going to be a lot of I think, waiting and seeing how this plays out and where that comes in. Um, I do think where the pressure is going to be is on uh, bills that would address more explicitly things like maternal mortality, uh, health care access, particularly to women, infant, and children, as well as Medicaid expansion. But I think there, part of the problem is, is that we have these sort of competing pressures. On the one hand, there's this real argument of, well, now we need to step up to the plate because we're saying that We're going to support women uh, who are now being told that they have to carry this child's term um, and have these children and raise them. But on the other hand, there is staunch opposition, for example, of much of the Republican caucus to expanding Medicaid, which would be the sort of natural thing there of expanding uh, peach care, which is only focused on children. Um, There was a lot of backlash and and sort of fighting about expanding uh, the women and infant children program. Um, Within the state of Georgia, sort of another area is actually support while you are pregnant. We do not have uh, leave, right? We we don't have uh, paid leave. They've started that. It's very limited. Um, That's going to be a big issue there. What about women who develop complications in pregnancy? Not where it comes up to the point that her life is in danger, but in order to support the pregnancy, she needs, for example, to be on bed rest for extended periods of time on what is going to happen there, right? And again, these are things where for those women who are financially well off, that is a very different calculation than for those women who are not, right? If you are working in a job where you work hourly, if you don't show up to work, you don't get paid, but what happens if going to work might cause you to lose the child and you are sort of put within it, and then how is that going to be dealt with? And so the, the stages is it'll be interesting to see if the legislative session, uh, if we start to see a shift in how um, the arguments that are generally used on both sides, because those are not generally arguments that we see a lot of support for, particularly in the Republican caucus, but now uh, that, might, that calculus might shift.
1: Yeah, we're going to talk um, about this in the weeks and months to come. I want to focus a little bit on what Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams had to say yesterday. We're going to take a break and we'll talk about that when we come back with Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry filling in for Bill Nygat. Let's hear what happened yesterday. Within hours of the ruling, we heard from the state's candidates for statewide offices, both Governor Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. They both held press conferences and posted comments on social media. Let's hear from them first. Brian Kemp.
5: This is Governor Brian Kemp. And I'm First Lady Marty Kemp. Since taking office in 2019... Our family has committed to serving Georgia in a way that cherishes and values each and every human being at all stages of life. And today's decision by the 11th Circuit affirms that promise. We have worked hard to
1: increase supportive
5: services for mothers and
1: their children, before, during, and after birth.
5: Working with the Georgia General Assembly, we have made significant strides on several fronts. Such as expanding
1: pregnancy and parental resources, extending health coverage to a full year for
0: mothers after birth, improving our adoption system, and reforming foster care.
5: As well as the First Lady's work leading the Grace Commission in combating human trafficking, we will continue this important work in the days and months to come. We are encouraged that the court has paved the way for the implementation of Georgia's Life Act. And as mothers navigate pregnancy, birth, parenthood, are alternative options to parenthood like adoption? Georgia's public, private, and nonprofit sectors stand ready to provide the resources they need to be safe, healthy, and informed.
1: Well, that was Brian Kemp, and let's turn right around and hear from Stacy Abrams what she had to say.
3: It's a fact that in Georgia, forced pregnancy is now the law of the state. The draconian abortion ban signed into law by the current governor in 2019 makes it a crime to seek an abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. Georgia women will lose their right to choose before most even know they're pregnant because of the governor's callous decision to put his politics above women's health care needs. As your next governor, I intend to continue to defend a woman's right to choose and to protect the rights of all. What has been done with this law is an assault on our liberties, and we will fight back.
1: This is now the major issue in the gubernatorial race. And so I, I want to start with our reporters who are out there uh, covering all of this. Uh, Stephen, your thoughts from yesterday, what you heard.
2: It. I mean, it... it... There are many issues that are driving the polling and the stature of this uh, reelection campaign for Brian Kemp and the second challenge for Stacey Abrams. But the abortion issue was is one that I think has one of the most salience with voters around the state about two completely different perspectives on the overall role of state government and what the government should do for the people of Georgia and how that fits into there. I mean, the abortion issue is something that is now top of mind for more voters than you would expect. Uh, It was the top of mind in 2019, but there wasn't really elections until 2020. But now, just months before people head to the polls, I mean, next month you can start requesting an absentee ballot for the November election. And so you've got this showdown for who controls the state of Georgia and who's in the driver's seat for directions of things like, you know, uh, how easy or difficult it is to have a baby, um, the how likely you are to potentially be charged for a crime if you do not want, uh, if you want to seek an abortion, or even if you have an abortion that fits under the law, will you be prosecuted? And so um, it, it's more than just an issue of inflation or pocketbook issues. And I think abortion and the way both Kemp and Abrams are framing this is really about uh, kind of a moral imperative for the direction of the state of Georgia, and that's something that's going to get a lot of voters on both sides of the aisle very, very riled up and very, very motivated to show up this November.
1: Yeah, Maya, you had you guys had an AJC poll back in January, and it shows seventy percent of voters opposed overturning Ro- Wade Roe versus Wade. So, uh, wh- how do you see this playing out politically?
4: You know. I guess I, I'm a little bit torn about how how things will, how this will affect things in November. Um, you know, on the one hand, you know, I think a lot of people who have strong opinions about abortion, um, you know, whether they thought abortion should be more limited, they were probably already voting Republican. And if they thought access to abortion should be more expansive or should to remain as it was in Georgia, I think they were probably already voting Democrat. I don't know. I don't know how much that's going to shift numbers. But then on the other hand, I'm on TikTok because I like to pretend that I'm young and I see, I see people on TikTok who had been, you know, in other states. Like I remember one specifically, you know, woman in Pennsylvania talking about how she was a registered independent because in Pennsylvania you register by party and how. She had kind of stayed out of it because she did not think anything, you know, she did not think things would affect her. She did not think Roe versus Wade would be overturned. But now, she made it her mission on her TikTok account to get educated. She registered as a Democrat. She was planning to exclusively vote Democrat going forward. And she was making a mission to to turn as many people like her as there were. I do not know how many people like her there are. um, But, you know, so it is possible we could see, we could see a shift. I'll be interested to see new polling numbers on um, on what people think about Roe versus Wade and also uh, if they if it really will translate into who they vote for. Um, So we'll we'll see what happens.
1: Okay, Amy, let's go to you briefly and then I want to get to Representative Oliver, too.
4: So
3: it's one of the things that Maya is completely right, that for most people, sort of their allegiance to parties is already set. But the most important thing that happens when it comes to elections is actually turnout, right? And what it is that prompts people to actually go to the polls. And what is, I guess, sort of politically most interesting here is that the balance of power has shifted. In many ways, there have not been as many... Uh, sort of single issue voters on the left with abortion because the right was in place, right? They won. They didn't have to instead, right? So the motivation was on the side that was trying to win, that was trying to make change. Well, now that has slipped, right? For those on the right, they've now won uh, the right, right? And we've seen that, whereas the motivation now is on the other side. And so what's going to be interesting is to see if now, because we've seen in the past, that abortion was not uh, an issue that was as motivating for those on the left as those on the right. And again, in part, that was because the right was in place, right? They had won. So it was sort of a, what what am I, why would that spur me to turn out? Now that calculus has shifted. And so it will be interesting to see if this is the type of thing that brings people to the polls who, who otherwise would not perhaps have been voting. Because remember that for most people, the default is not to turn out and vote. So you have to give them a reason to turn out and vote.
1: Yeah. Representative
3: Oliver.
0: As our conversation now turns more to the Georgia courts and the Georgia Constitution's protection of a right of privacy. And as each day goes forward, as more individual families and individual young women are facing reality that their right that they've had for almost 50 years is now taken away from them and they cannot afford to fly to New York to get the medical care they need. This issue is going to become more and more real on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis as we move forward. The small minority of the Republican leadership that's wanted to make this chaos and this this now reality of abortion being banned and what the implications of that for all aspects of our society, they are now there. And the republic is going to respond in a way that I truly believe is going to reflect how they personally feel about their right to privacy, how they personally feel about their decisions to make a family with the people they love or not.
1: Yeah. Uh, This was the best group of people to have on to talk about this issue. I want to thank all of you, Amy Steigerwald, Stephen Fowler, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver and Maya Prabhu. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. This is certainly an issue we're going to be talking about, as I said, in the the weeks and the months to come. Uh, I want to mention, before we wrap up our new show on GPB-TV, I'm hosting Lawmakers Beyond the Dome. We're taking a look at what happens after the legislation becomes law, uh, how it affects Georgians. We're talking about that on a regular basis. We're going to do that in in depth in an hour-long show. Up first, Georgia's Concealed Carry Law, and so tune in this Sunday, July 24th at 5 p.m. on GPB for that show. For now... I just thank you for tuning in to Political Rewind. Special thanks to the amazing team that produces this show, Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, Victoria Evans-Cash, and Jay Cook. We had to change gears with our plans for the show after that federal court ruling yesterday, and they ran with it. They are all impressive. Thank you for joining us again. Have a great day.